You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was asked two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? Is it political? Is it social? Is it spiritual? Where do you get your authority? And secondly, who gave you this authority? Where did you receive it? Who gave you the authority to come in and overturn the tables? Who gave him permission to come into the temple and teach? For a man to have rabbinic authority that they are speaking of here, He would have to be an apprentice to a leading rabbi, much like Paul the Apostle was uh, as he was Saul of Tarsus to Gamaliel. It says he sat at the feet of Gamaliel and he became a member of the Sanhedrin eventually. And then once you went through this apprenticeship, you would be ordained as a rabbi yourself. And and that ordination included the authority to teach. It included uh, the opportunity to express your wisdom on various passages. It allowed you to make civil and spiritual decisions over the people. And once they had this authority, they had official recognition and they were credentialed. But here's the problem, at least for the Pharisees. Jesus had no such credentials. So when they asked him, where did you get authority to preach, to teach, cast out demons, raise the dead, teach in the synagogue? Even they recognized he has authority, but they didn't know where it came from. And it would seem that of all of the gospel writers, Matthew seems to emphasize the authority aspect of Jesus's ministry. Why? Because as you know, Matthew was writing to the Hebrews in order to instruct them that Jesus is truly the king. And if you're a king, you have to have authority. And so throughout Matthew's gospel, he keeps talking about authority. Let me give you some examples. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, after Jesus had concluded that powerful teaching, it says that the crowds were amazed because Jesus taught as one having authority not like the scribes and the Pharisees. They made the comparison. They knew there was something different. You remember the Gentile centurion whose soldier came and asked Jesus in Matthew chapter eight for a healing on his servant. And he told Jesus, you don't need to come under my roof. You speak a word and my servant will be healed for I am a man under authority. He realized Jesus's authority, even in the things that he said. The paralyzed man. You remember in the home of uh, there in Capernaum as he was lowered through the roof and as he was brought down there before Jesus and lay at his feet, Jesus forgave him of his sins. And in the minds of the religious leaders, they said, wait a second, only God alone has authority to forgive sins. And Jesus then said to these Pharisees that were standing by so that you know I have authority to forgive sins. I say to this man, take up your bed and go home. And a paralyzed man walked out completely whole. At the great commission, At the end of Matthew's gospel, which we're not going to get to that today, but eventually we're going to get there to 28, Matthew 28. And Jesus said, you remember, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Where does your authority come from? Well, obviously from heaven. So the Pharisees ask him, where do you get this authority? And I love Jesus. He doesn't defer so much from the question or seek to get around it. He was perfectly willing to answer it, but he understood they wanted to know who gave him authority. And so he asked them a question about John the Baptist and their answer to his question will give them the answer to their question. All they got to do is answer one simple question and it'll answer two questions. Where's authority came from? 
So they had a quandary. This was a problem. Why? Because everybody believed that John the Baptist was indeed a prophet sent from God. And John came on the scene. You remember, they asked, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. There's one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not willing to get down and untie. And he's going to, he has this winnowing fan in his hand. He's going to purge his threshing floor and, and all these things. He's the lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And so when Jesus showed up, John pointed to Jesus and th- said, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. And so the Pharisees knew that. And so they gathered around in this huddle. They said, hold on a second, we're going to talk about this. So they get around, they start talking. Well, if we say this, then he'll say that. If we say this, the people will know that. What are we going to do? Well, let's just tell them we don't know. And so that's what they did. They said, we don't know the answer. They did know the answer, but they were unwilling to respond. They would rather be ignorant. They revealed their own blindness and their ignorance in the denial of the truth. F.B. Meyer commented on this particular passage, and I quote, he said, but of what use was it to endeavor to satisfy these men who had refused to acknowledge the divine mission of the forerunner? They would not speak out of their inner convictions because of the effect it would have on their worldly prospects. And for such as these, Christ has nothing. A good commentative word upon that passage. There are people, however, aren't there today, like that in the world that you come across from time to time. They willfully deny the existence of God, though it's as clear as the nose upon their face. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Creation is is a clear demonstration of a designer behind a design. And they say, I don't believe it. Not because it isn't clear, not because it's hidden, but because it would affect their worldly prospects. To the intellectual, to the the PhD, to the, you know, halls of academia where you have certain individuals who say, well, God doesn't exist. So you spent all that money and you got that piece of paper and that's what you came up with? That's ridiculous. But that's how how it is. But it's, it's really not an intellectual problem with the existence of God or the existence of Jesus or what he said. It's not an intellectual problem. You know what the problem is? It's a sin problem. It really is. I don't care how smart you think you are. It's a sin problem. It will affect your worldly prospects that you have in your life to admit you're a sinner and you need a savior. And so I just say it doesn't exist. I don't believe it. And and that's that. It settles it. No, it doesn't settle it, but it will be settled. Jesus put it this way. He said in John chapter three, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. I mean, let's just really be honest about the fact. It's not an intellectual problem that you have. You're smart enough to figure this out. A child can figure it out. It's not that hard. It's sin. It's wanting to be in darkness as opposed to light. That's the problem. Paul put it this way in writing to the Romans. He said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that the truth doesn't exist. You suppress it, you shove it down, and you cover it in unrighteousness. And for some reason, that pacifies you and and justifies where you're at, and you just don't believe that it exists. But it doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the truth. And this is where these men were at. And so professing to be wise, they were really fools. And they would not answer. And now up to this point, as they're evaluating the ministry of Jesus, Jesus now, if you would, somewhat goes on the offensive and he begins to speak a series of parables that will unmask where these men are really at. 
You remember a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, just an illustration to describe a spiritual truth. Notice this first story. Maybe you can relate to this. He tells this story in verse 28, and he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. Then he came to the second, and he said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of these did the will of his father? And the Pharisees responded. They said, the first. And that was the right answer. Jesus is now going to tell a very pointed parable directed toward them. And he describes it. There's a father. He's got two boys. He's got a job. I know what this is. I've got three boys. And there are times when I tell them to do something. And they say, I'll do it, dad. And then you go in their room the next day. And it's still not done. You say, what happened? I thought we were talked about this. Oh, I forgot. You know, you did. You forgot. Okay, well, let me remind you. No, you don't. Okay. Let me remind you. Let's do this, right? And then you got another one. You say, hey, son, go do this. And he says, oh, dad, totally, I'm on it. I'll do it. And he doesn't do it. Or you have to force him to do it. So you can relate to this parable. But he says, there's a guy with two kids and they go out and, and he gives them a job to do. One says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going. And, but then he feels bad and he goes and does it. The next one says, he says, go out and do this. And he says, well, I'll go, no problem. But he doesn't go. Which one did the will of the father? The one that went, obviously. You say, how does this apply to them? Here's the deal. The Pharisees represent the second son. The other folks, there's two groups really that he categorizes here. The sinners are represented in the first son. Notice Jesus gives the application of the parable. Let him explain it. It says here in verse 31, Assuredly, I say to you, here's the meaning of the parable. Tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Oh boy, you, listen. This, you, this, meek and mild, this is so strong. This is so powerful. This is the religious known world. I mean, Jesus comes right up to him and says, I'll give you the interpretation of this parable. Tax collectors and harlots, by the way, they were at the lowest rung of sinner. I mean, if you put sinners on a graph I mean, the worst sinner you could think of, one was a tax collector and right up there with them is the prostitute. And Jesus says to the religious leaders who spent their life in religious activity, studying the word of God and all of this, he says, guess what, guys, I want to let you know. Harlots and tax collectors are getting in and you're not. Pretty much, that's, that's pretty much what he's saying. Could you, you, know, you want to know why they want to crucify him? I mean, that, that kind of sets the tone for what's to come. Why would he say that? Here's why prostitutes and tax collectors, when they heard the message of John the Baptist, they were convicted and they repented like the first son in the story. Heard it and initially said, I don't want anything to do with it. But then he repented and went out and did the will of God. However, the Pharisees, you know, they had all of these things accessible to them, the word of God and all of these things. And when they heard it, they, of course, we're doing that. that. That's what we do. We're professionals. And yet they did not do the will of God. They were ripping the people off. And so as a result, they weren't getting into the kingdom. They didn't believe as Jesus gave them the interpretation. The point that Jesus is making from this parable is it doesn't matter how sinful you are or how righteous you think that you are in your own estimation. No matter how moral you appear to be or how immoral you are, every person must realize that they're a sinner regardless 
I don't care if you're a worse sinner than somebody else, you're still a sinner. And the sinners who seemed to be like the unlikely candidates to get saved were the ones who were responding. On the other hand, the second son in the parable, the religious leaders is who, they, who he represented, they only gave lip service to the preaching of John, but they never repented. And in essence, they rejected the father. Sure, they pray on street corners. Sure, they tithe of their, even their spices. Sure, they, they go to synagogue consistently. Sure, they would, you know, lecture people from various scrolls and so forth. Yet, the Bible says that they, in essence, they had rejected the Father by their actions. And listen, guys, carefully. To apply this to here and now, there are a lot of people in the same category as these men. Oh, they go through all kinds of religious activity. Oh, they may light candles. They may partake of various elements that that speak of of the Lord's death. And they may uh, go through religious motions and and all the rest of it and pray certain prayers and and you name it. But, But listen, they're not saved for some of them. They haven't come through Jesus Christ. Their righteousness is is simply reduced to what they do by by way of of tradition or whatever it might be. They need to come through Christ the same way that you and I need to be saved. God doesn't look at the emotional outburst. What God wants is the heart. What God wants is the submitted will. Not just an outward observance, not just a, a routine that I go through, some outward form. God wants the change of heart. He wants a surrendered will. And so here we see Jesus stripping away any confidence that could be placed in religion as a means of salvation because it solely depends upon obedience and faith in relationship with Jesus Christ that you can be saved. And for some of you, that may be an eye opener, but allow your eyes to be open, friend, to the truth of the gospel. It'll set you free. It'll change your life. The first mistake the religious leaders made is that they denied the truth. They denied the father. But the second, they did not repent. Notice the next parable Jesus speaks to them. Look closely with me. It says in verse 33, Jesus said, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard. He set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower. He leased it to the vine dressers. He went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that he might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to him. Then the last, all he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? He asked them the question. And they said, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus gives a second parable. And again, it speaks of and speaks to the religious leaders. Let me share with you in the book of Isaiah chapter 5, the nation of Israel is likened to God's vineyard. And they were to bring forth fruit, if you would, to the father who planted them there. And here, the, the owner of the vineyard is the father. And the father leased the vineyard to vine dressers who were the religious leaders. And they were supposed to bring forth fruit, but they didn't. And so what the father did to the nation of Israel is he sent various representatives in the form of the prophets. He sent Daniel, he sent Jeremiah, he sent Amos, he sent all the rest of them to come and speak the truth of God's word to draw them back to himself. But what did they do to the prophets? Here Jesus says in the story, and practically they did it, they killed them. They martyred them. They did away with God's representatives. 
And so the father, the owner of the, the vineyard, says, here's what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And who's the son but Jesus? And Jesus came to them. And what were they about to do? In less than a week's time, they were going to kill the son, just like the story revealed. And then what makes it even more astounding is Jesus asked the question, what do you think is going to happen to those that kill the son? And they said, well, of course, they're going to be judged. They're pronouncing judgment upon themselves. Do you understand what's happening? He's telling them a story that, that reveals who they are and where they're at, and they don't get it. Surely you're talking to someone else. Do you know there's people like that today? They come to the word of God and they say, you know what? This would be a great message for so-and-so. I mean, it really would. This would minister to them because they got some issues and I need to, and perhaps that's the case. But how does it minister to you? Sometimes we can think about all the people who need to hear this and we forget that, oh yeah, I need to hear this. Honestly, I can tell you the honest truth. When I'm saying these things to you and a man pointed it out last service, he said, you're preaching to yourself, aren't you? I'm like, am I that transparent? Yes, I am. I preach to myself. You're just here with me. But we're all learning and growing together. But the truth of the matter is, I need the Lord to examine my heart as much as you do. Man, the sweet psalmist of Israel cried out to God and said, God, search my heart. How much more do I need that? And you as well. But notice the special privileges that these people in the vineyard had. They were planted. They had a hedge sent around them. It speaks of their protection. There was a wine press that was dug for them and that would be, uh, enable them to be productive and fruitful. They had a vineyard lease to them, which would speak of their freedom to worship. The Lord gave his people, the nation of Israel, a great gift. And to these religious leaders specifically, but they rejected the son and they would be judged because of this rejection. And so they responded. And then Jesus said, quoting from Psalm 118 in verse 42 of this chapter, we're almost through. He said, have you never read in the scriptures? Again, every time he said that, that was an indictment. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here's the application. I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Verse 45. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. What amazing perception. Suddenly the light goes on. Hey, wait a second. Was it, are you talking to me? Was that for us? Yes, it was for you. They suddenly perceived it and they weren't too happy about it. But Jesus here quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and and 23, talking about himself being that chief cornerstone and that they had a decision to make. To the Jews, the Bible tells us in Romans, Jesus was a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, he was a smiting stone. But to believers in Jesus Christ, he's a foundation that we can build our lives on. And here Jesus says, listen, here's, here's the ultimatum. If you, can, if you fall on this stone, speaking of himself, you'll be broken. And that's a good thing. Or you can have the stone fall on you and grind you to powder. It's pretty much your decision is what he's saying. You know what the parable means. You know what the interpretation is. I've given it to you. What are you going to do with what you've heard? In the first parable, they rejected the father. Here in the second parable, he points out they've rejected the son. Next week, we'll see in the third parable, they reject the work of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, an important question. Are you going to fall upon the rock and be broken? 
Or are you going to allow yourself to be crushed under the weight of the rock in judgment? Guys, can I just encourage you? It's better to do the first. Brokenness is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And the truth of the matter is, we as a people, we need to be broken, guys. You know why? Let's be honest for a moment. We're, we're proud. We're prideful people at heart. It's something we all battle with. We all were confronted by it. But it's amazing when the Lord allows us to be broken. It's broken of self-will and self, all this. Man, that's when God can really work. When we're broken, that's when God can put us together and, and make us whole and make us useful. But without bro- brokenness precedes usefulness. You can't, you can't do anything for the kingdom of God if you're not broken before God. Sometimes we look at people and think, oh man, oh, I wish that. Do you, do you, know, do you know what goes on there? There's a whole lot of brokenness going on there. And that's a good thing. Oh, blessed brokenness that allows me to continue to be used by the grace of God. We need to be broken. And I'll say this, not only do we as individuals need to be broken, but the church of Jesus Christ, you know, corporately, congregationally, we need to be broken. Now we become proud. We take great, you know, delight in all of these things that have necessarily nothing to do with that which is spiritual. And there's a need for brokenness. The Bible says judgment begins in the house of God. We need to be, we need to be broken. And what's it going to take for God's people to get on their face and be broken? What about the nation? Does not our nation need to be broken in some sense to come back to its, to its moral compass that we have gotten away from, come back to the place where we were humble before God and said, oh God, lead this country. And oh God, we, we can't do this without you. And where, where did all that go? It's all gone. But I believe there's going to be a wave of brokenness at some point that will come to us. And I'm not necessarily excited about the form it's going to come in. But I think it's a necessity if there's to be any kind of revival in this nation because we're just too proud. But the Bible says that God resists the proud, but, but he gives grace to the humble. And I want grace, Lord. Oh, we sing songs related to our country. Oh, the grace shed upon us and all of this. Well, it's when we're humble that we receive grace. It's when we're proud that when we're resisted. May God help us to humble ourselves once again under the mighty hand of God personally, congregationally, and even nationally. We need it. We need it. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor John Randall. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor John's teaching ministry by visiting adailywalk.org.